Hi, everyone. Welcome to this session, the second uh, Green Agenda debate. This one's on social movements and political parties and how we relate to each other. Uh, my name's Claire, and I'm along with Simon Copland on the end there. We co-edit Green Agenda. Green Agenda is an online political publication exploring green ideas. It's supported by the Green Institute. You can find it at greenagenda.org.au. And we publish long-form articles, interviews, and other forms of content, as I said, exploring the, I guess, really the philosophy of Greens politics. Uh, and we like to ask the big questions, so we don't kind of, we're not, we're less interested in sort of the day-to-day -day of politics and the day-to-day -day of news, um, and we're more interested in exploring the bigger questions like this one today. How do political parties and social movements re uh, relate to each other? What's the relationship between the two? And so we've got an awesome panel uh, to talk um, about that today. Our panel. I'm just going to introduce all the panel and then they can tell us, tell, then they can tell me <laughs> what order they're going to go. Uh, but first we have um, May Zizi. May has run national and local political campaigns as a campaign manager for the Greens, managed parliamentary campaigns as a political staffer and worked at a execu uh, senior executive level in the community sector. She is currently the Director of Media and Communications at Anglicare Australia. And on the, on, on the end there is Simon, and Simon's a freelance writer and climate campaigner. He's worked for and was, act, and was an active volunteer for the Greens between 2007 and 2012, has recently worked for the climate organisation 350.org, and as I mentioned before, is my co-editor at Green Agenda. And in the middle there is Holly Hammond. And Holly is Plan to Win's founder and director and principal facilitator and trainer. She's also the founder and co-convener of the Melbourne Campaigners Network and Plan to Thrive. She brings 25 years of experience in social movements to her work as an educator, facilitator and mentor. These guys are going to answer this question first. Social movements work to change society. Political parties are necessarily constrained by political institutions. What should the relationship be between the two? Who leads and who follows? And I think Holly is going to kick us off. Um, hi, everyone. This question, I found myself feeling a little conflicted as I was thinking about how I'd respond to it because I feel like I wear two hats. So one, um, as an activist educator, working to... Um, you know, build the power and effectiveness of social movements. And then uh, with my other hat on as a Greens member who wants to see the Greens succeed and uh, have strong representation in parliaments. And so there was a little uh, kind of tension in there. So I thought I would start by um, talking about kind of what we mean by these different ideas of social movement and political party, um, just to get some definitional stuff, because I think uh, the term movement or social movement gets used a whole lot and we're not always really clear what it is we're talking about when we say that. So uh, one definition to start with comes from Sydney Tarot, that social movements are sustained collective challenges to elites, authorities, other groups or cultural codes by people with common purposes and solidarity. There's quite a lot in there. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a good start, but I think there's a lot um, more diversity and tension within social movements than that definition kind of suggests. So um, social movements are bigger than single actions and more than particular campaigns. They are ongoing efforts by diverse participants with varied impacts. And those impacts can be personal, like they have, a they have impact on us uh, personally and individually, um, cultural and political. Uh, and social movements are made up of people who, you know, if they're, if they're uh, 
focused on a particular issue, uh, those people could have really different ideas about what the problem is and what the cause of the problem is, so have different analysis about where this is coming from and what, you know, what needs to happen. Uh, they have different ideas about the solutions. Uh, they'll take different actions towards the change that they want to see. And they'll organise in different forms. So there's a whole lot of complexity within social movements. And I think, um, actually, we're at a bit of an exciting time where um, that's being acknowledged more. So Annie Kia from um, the Gas Field Free um, Coal Seam Gas uh, movement has done a lot of great thinking and work around complexity theory and has brought that to life within that movement uh, and is writing about, about that. And um, I remember her kind of saying, um, if it's neat, it's not a social movement. You know, <laughs> there's chaos, there's change, there's shifting things all the time. Uh, it's not easily kind of um, categorised and considered. It's not neat. So, um, so that's kind of thinking about what do we mean by a social movement. Um, and, you know, as I was sort of saying, my, I, I work a lot as a trainer and facilitator with different organisations and campaigns within social movements to look at how, to, how they can build power and demonstrate power, use power, um, and think about power in different ways. Uh, and then, um, you know, with this other hat on um, as a Greens member and supporter, um, working with that tension. So if we talk, think about... You know, it, it feels very natural to me to say where the people people should lead and the politicians should follow. But if we are talking about who leads and who follows and we bring that to the Greens, we, I think we need to remember this thing around the fact that social movements aren't, aren't homogenous. So it becomes a question of, well, which part of the movement are you following? Um, and then also, well, are you movement players yourself? And what does that position look like? And what, what does leading and following look like around that? So if for example, we think back to um, the carbon price um, coming in and, uh, you know, the Say Yes campaign. Most of the climate organisations, uh, environmental NGOs, were all working together on this Say Yes campaign uh, and bringing their members to be actively engaged around it, which was basically just saying yes to, you know, whatever happened. Um, at the time that the Greens were uh, trying to get, were trying to negotiate greater ambition. So in terms of, uh, you know, one of the great things that movements can do is build political space to get better outcomes. And that was a time when, you know, the majority of the movement was actually just giving carte blanche th thumbs up to whatever happened, which didn't grow the political space for the Greens in that situation. So, you know, you, we can see that the power of the movement manifested in terms of the Green vote. So if many people were really activated around climate change, that was a big, was a key factor in getting Greens into Parliament. But then uh, in terms of what the movement did after that, you know, wasn't so effective. So, you know, in that situation, should the Greens have gone, oh, yeah, the, let's follow the movement? They're saying this, you know, and given up that position of leadership. So where the Greens were kind of further out on the issue and the movement was lagging behind, should Greens have gone, all right, but, you know... We'll take our cues from the movement. I don't think so. You know, I don't think that actually helps anybody. So the other bit that I just wanted to, to mention in here is that political parties, um, you know, what do, we, what do we understand political parties to be? They're constituted in different ways across the different parties, but even within our state parties, they look different as well. But I would just kind of generally say that um, political parties are organisations with a membership and a platform, um, and the platform re represents the shared principles of the membership. 
um, so that if the platform aligns with your values and beliefs, you might want to join that political party. And then if you do, then you have a chance to change that platform or have an impact on it. But that also means that accountability in a party for an MP, you know, goes to that membership and to that platform and to voters rather than to, to an, you know, amorphous pressure that might come from outside. So uh, I suppose just to sum up, I'm like, yay, people power. And I want, um, you know, our political, I want political space to be, to grow and what's possible politically to be grown by the actions of social movements. But I also want to see the Greens, um, you know, stay true to uh, the values and principles that are defined by the membership and that, that, that accountability to be respected. Thank you, Holly. That was really excellent. I'm glad you went first because there's good definitional stuff that we should be doing uh, to start us, get us going. Uh, I'm going to take a slightly different approach uh, to this question. Um, we, we sort of wanted to be provocative here, so I'm going to go with that. Um, my, what, the way I want to think about this is how... I'm thinking about this uh, question from the perspective of social movements and thinking about how social movements relate not just to political parties but to the state as a whole and to, to, to the capitalist state or the liberal state as a whole. Uh, and so thinking about what that looks like and how social movements should engage when thinking about the state or engaging with the state. I think, from my perspective, we have, a, a you know, it, within a lot of progressive politics in Australia, there's that sort of perception of, you know, what, what we obviously want to do is make a more progressive state, to make a state that invests in public services, that, you know, t- tackles climate change, that is, you know, in, engage in, in equality legislation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, what, what I want to argue is that actually in the current setup or in the current framework of our liberal democracy or within the framework of capitalism, the actual outcome of getting proper progressive government is actually unachievable unless we change the foundations of the system. And so how, in thinking about that, how do we actually achieve social change whilst engaging with the state as it is? So the reason I argue that that's the case is that, the, you know, we've got to think about who this system, who our political system was designed by and who it was designed for. And we can see pretty clearly from my perspective that it was designed by and for the interests of, of capitalists and ruling, the ruling class. Um, and that uh, de- defines so much of how, how, the, how, how our system operates. Uh, and so when you have so-called progressive parties, think about the Labor Party in particular, end up in government quite frequently, they have managed to abandon those progressive values quite quickly uh, in order to um, maintain the system as it is. Um, so, you know, we see the Labor Party, uh, you know, abandoning stuff on asylum seekers, but also on major economic issues. You know, during the last Labor government, there was an obsessive focus on getting a budget surplus, which resulted in huge cuts to public services. And that was about maintaining the sort of capitalist order as it existed and maintaining that sort of narrative of what a capitalist government should do. And I think that we have to be careful because I think the Greens can and have at times fallen into that trap as well, Uh, less so in Australia because we've had fewer opportunities. But I think that there were, for example, issues uh, in the Tasmanian government, I think that, you know, where we ended up being the party that was responsible for closing lots of schools. But if you look at governments in Europe in particular, the German Greens have had, you know, been very much considered sort of neoliberals on bikes by many many quarters, and that's something we have to be wary of. Um, I, I really like this quote uh, talking about the from this person called Gelasmo talking about the UK Labor Party after um, Jeremy Corbyn got elected and talking about, you know, how we have to be wary about Jeremy Corbyn. And this person said, governments of any political stripe can only act by wielding the power of the state. To main, maintain a powerful state, governments need a strong economy, and that means managing capitalism and maintaining a capitalist social order. Different governments can try and do this in different ways, but they're all bound by the same basic logic. 
and none of them offer any real hope of a way out of a cycle of capitalist domination and human misery. That's why left-wing and socialist governments routinely disappoint us. And again, if you look in Europe, for example, if we think about the, the example of Syriza, who was this radical progressive government that ended up then adopting the position of the Troika at the time straight after a huge referendum um, in which people voted no to major more austerity cuts, you can see the sort of potential failures of radical left-wing governments when sort of pushed into a capitalist system. So thinking about all of that, I'm going to probably in the second question talk more about how the Greens can engage with some of this stuff, but thinking about that, I've got to want to basically think about what should social movements be doing when engaging with the state and what, how should we be thinking about social movements in engaging in the state in this way? And I think that there are two ways we can social movements should be engaging, or you know, this is two ways I think. So I think firstly we can use the tools of the state to con obtain concessions at particular points of time. So, you know, from a perspective, for example, I do a lot of work in gay and lesbian politics. There are great things that have been achieved through decriminalisation processes, uh, through forcing the state to fund HIV AIDS treatments um, and recent campaigns for marriage equality. And these things are all positive things uh, that are w within the structures of the state. And I'm not going to deny that those things are positive and that we should be looking to achieve those positive outcomes and do so proactively. The second thing, however, is that I argue that social movements should be working to challenge some of the power structures of the state, the power structures that are creating this sort of unequal outcomes. And so, again, going back to uh, queer politics, for example, uh, in the US you have a lot of queer po politics that is engaged in talking about things like increasing hate crimes legislation, which is about incarcerating people more, about the state incarcerating people more based on the idea that their crime was committed, you know, with their, with their idea of hate uh, in doing so. Whereas I argue what queer groups should be doing is actually working towards prison abolition uh, and working towards ending the power of the state to incarcerate people in the first place. And so you can see, uh, you know, a big difference in a position between increasing the power of the state and decreasing the power of the state. And I go much more to the decreasing the power of the state because it's that, in, you know, in, in the case of prisons, for example, it is a power that targets minority groups and will continue to target minority groups and will do so even more if we increase it, its power. Uh, it will just target minority groups who aren't LGBTIQ, maybe, if we're lucky. All of this, I argue, just to finish off, must be done with the tone of thinking about how we can actually change the systems of power and how we can change the systems so that we can have new forms of governance and have new forms of a, you know, a social system that doesn't have all of these problems that I'm talking about, that doesn't, isn't based on a capitalist order. And so even when we're going for these sort of obtaining concessions, we want to be thinking about how can this be a step towards an end goal. So one of the critiques I have of marriage equality campaign, for example, is that it sort of treats marriage equality as the end goal as that obtaining access to a state institution is the end goal and that is the height of liberation, whereas I don't agree with that and I think that there are other forms of liberation that we need to be going through. It's an important step, potentially. Obtaining equality is an important step, but it's not the end goal and so we need to have these sorts of processes thinking about a broader end goal. And I will end there. Thanks. I was a little bit nervous about um, going after Holly and Simon, but I think it actually uh, works really well. Um, I was doing a bit of thinking about this over the last few days and I think for me one of the things that I've observed in my time in the Greens is that your attitude towards how we should engage with social movements and where we should be drawing our MPs from and how members should engage with the party is really something that's shaped by your attitude of what the Greens are for, why you join the Greens. So I think if you're someone um, who's engaging with the Greens with the objective of presenting the Greens I guess as trustworthy custodians of the system as it is and maybe improving that system and you know improving things for people improving people's lives but at the end of the day wanting to wanting the greens to be seen as 
custodians of the system um, and, and, and managing things, managing things well versus people who join the Greens to change things and disrupt things and really challenge power. And I think when you talk to different people in the Greens, you can ask that question and you can get a pretty solid sense of whether they are engaged in, in movements themselves and, and, you know, some people in the Greens, I've, I've found, especially over the last few years, have had pretty ambivalent attitudes towards broader engagement with other social movements, which I think is a shame. Um, I'd like us to work closely um, with social movements and I agree with what Holly said about accountability to members, but I would like to see, I guess, a level of accountability um, to, to broader social movements and I think... Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I think the first is that for people who want large-scale social change, changes changes don't happen in Parliament or they don't start in Parliament. Parliament is usually the last place that is usually the last part of the change process, you know. Usually a lot's happened in the community. You know, it's it's usually... It's very responsive to community attitudes and you can see that in, in all the sort of broad-scale social changes um, that we've seen in Australia and other countries, you know, the last in really modern modern history. Um, and I think that's why we need social movements. Greens need social movements. Um, if our aim is to kind of disrupt power and reorganise and redistribute power. I think the second reason um, is, uh, is sort of to do with the relationship for me between ideology and social movements. Um, ideology is becoming, I think, a really kind of dirty word in politics. It's becoming more and more fashionable to sort of say, I'm not an ideologue. I'm here to solve problems, you know. I really care about evidence-based policy and all of that's important. Like, you know, evidence matters. All of that's, all of that's really important. But I think one of the things that, that we risk in the Greens and that worries me in the Greens is that we, we get into a parliamentary bubble where we become a bit obsessed with short-term improvements for people who might need, you know, I think we have a responsibility to do that as well. But I think you can you can end up really divorcing yourselves from, from longer-term goals and, I guess, the types of, the types of things that we were thinking of when, when we were forming the Greens, the type of big system, sort of large-scale change that we imagined for ourselves. And you end up with a really atomised if you treat every individual problem like that, you end up with a really atomised view of the world, no coherent worldview. I think that's a real, a real problem and I, I, I can kind of see that happening <laughs> a, a little bit, like just a, a lack of kind of coherence or the Greens becoming, or Greens MPs becoming more and more philosophically insubstantial as years, goes, years go on and, and that does worry me um, a, little, a little bit. Well, actually it worries me a lot. <laughs> Um, you know, so I think I think being grounded in social movements has has the potential to have you thinking about about longer term longer term goals, and and creates an accountability towards other actors. I think the challenge for us in Australia, and something that it would be good to talk about in the discussion, is really the weakness of social movements in Australia, and um, the weak. You know, Holly touched on that a little bit in her example um, about um, kind of where climate politics was at in, in 2010, and I don't think it's gotten that much better. 
you know, and I think that creates a problem for us because I think what then happens is our MPs become really reliant on other other actors like pr- professional organisations, peak peak organisations, which can be really progressive, like the one I work for. Um, yeah, which can be which ca- which can be really um, you know they can be really progressive and they have an agenda, but they don't necessarily have they're not necessarily grounded in a worldview. They don't have that common sense of what the problem is um, that, that Holly was kind of talking about before. And I think we're, it's getting... Talking to people, we're not as good anymore at distinguishing kind of the difference between those groups and, and what is a social movement. There have been times where I've asked people, well, why did we, why did we make this decision? This seems a bit curious to me. It's like, oh, ACOS really wanted that. And it's like ACOS, uh, you know, they're really these groups are really important and, and they matter and I'm active in a lot of them, um, but they're, you know, important civil society organisations, but they're not the same thing as a social movement and I think um, they occupy a lot of space for the Greens in our kind of community engagement in Australia and I think a big part of that is because of the weakness of social movements. So I think potentially we have a role as movement players as well, I think, in in kind of strengthening and participating in social movements, not just following or... Or leading. Well, we're going to move on to our second question, um, which is really um, one of the ways in which this tension that we've been talking about manifests in the way uh, we talk about ourselves as a Greens party, both internally and um, uh, the sort of external narratives get that get. Um, told about us or questions that are asked about us. So the second question that our panel is going to give their brief perspectives on is um, should, the, should Greens parties be parties of protest or parties aiming to form government either in our own right or as part of a coalition? And I think Simon's going to kick off this one. Thank you. Um, May said to me that my first section, my first uh, bit was a bit academic so I'm sorry about that. Um, but we're going <laughs> to see how we go with this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll try and turn it down this time. No, I probably won't. Um, <laughs> so in thinking about this question, I want us to think about, I guess, the political time in which we live. Um, so last year, there was a survey just before the 2016 election, an academic survey done by the University of Canberra, quite a large survey. Uh, they found that only 42% of Australians were happy with the way in which democracy, our democracy was operating. Um, at the same time, they found that trust in Australian politics politicians was at its lowest level in two decades. Um, As one of the researchers, Mark Evans, he said that for many Australians, political parties are simply failing to capture the political imagination. And I want, us think is, I want us to think about the potential that the Greens are actually part of that problem as well at times, and that we are potentially also failing to capture the political imagination at this point of time. This sort of trend, uh, what some call call anti-politics or it's an anti-establishment trend or whatever you want to call it, is growing around the world. And we saw it as a major driver behind the Brexit vote in the UK, a major driver behind the election of Donald Trump uh, in the US last year, and it's also a major driver behind the re-emergence of Pauline Hanson in Australia, uh, who all run on the sort of... Uh, Donald Trump ran on the, the drain the swamp idea of very strongly running against the political establishment. 
uh, and this is being found uh, in it's having a major impact on political institutions. So, uh, in a book called "Ruling the Void," uh, the political um, uh, political scientist Peter Mayer did some research about this in the European Union, and what he found is that over the past couple of decades, we have seen significant drops in political engagement, informal political engagement. Um, so that's drops in, in in Europe. This is in voter turnout, party allegiance, um, higher electoral volatility, drops in party membership, drops in memberships of civil civil organisations such as unions, which is obviously a big thing that's happened in Australia. Um, largely, there's been a big turn towards disengagement in our political institutions, in our big P political institutions. Uh, and I just make that very clear in that I think uh, Joan in our um, talk yesterday spoke about how, for example, a lot of millennials are engaging in politics in a different kind of way through social movements or through uh, online forms that aren't necessarily engaged with big P political institutions, and I think it's important to keep that note. It's not that we're becoming less interested in politics or the, or the issues that are focus, fa um, facing our communities, it's that we're seeing that our political system is not working for us, so increasing numbers of people are saying that it's not working for us. And while I think a lot of us might want to say, well, what we need to do is reinforce the strength of the system or reinforce the strength of the system, I would actually argue that this distrust is for good reason uh, and that there's actually good reason why this distrust is occurring. And that probably links back to what I was talking about before. But look, just look at the state of Australian politics at the moment. Uh, you know, we have, over the last, you know, few months, you know, we've, we've gone to a vote um, on same-sex marriage, which has out outraged a lot of people and highlights an inability for the government to do their work. Um, we've, uh, you know, and we're doing so despite huge support for same-sex marriage, if you, if you um, follow the polls, that says that people just want this to be done. Um, our government likes to give big, continues to like to give big tax cuts to corporations while cutting welfare services, while implementing the, uh, the robo-calling system at Centrelink, while at the same time, um, you know, f uh, breaking the rules in terms of their, getting, you know, their, um, the citizenship cases, for example, which has caused them, you know, those sorts of, you know, highlighted those contradictions. And, you know, and we're still, you know, we're still governments that support things like, you know, like a, a massive coal mine, despite, you know, strong community support against it. Um, there are a whole range of you know, examples of this, of governments that is just disconnected from the general population and from the views of the population, and governments that are obsessed with themselves and obsessed within that political bubble and doesn't really care about the people. And so there's good reason to say that there is real good reason people don't trust politicians anymore. What I fear is that where, uh, from my time in the Greens, and I'm not really active in the Greens anymore, but from my time in the Greens... What I saw when I was involved, um, and I was part of this process were, as well, was a real desire to act, increasingly act more like the, the other political parties. And this was something we spoke about internally quite a lot. You know, we talked about polling that said, you know, people, you know, don't like that we're a protest party, as if a protest party is a bad thing. Um, so what we need to do is make ourselves look more mainstream. Uh, we need to make ourselves look more like the other political parties. We need to moderate our views or our messaging so we can gain more political support. Uh, and this was something that I think has occurred and is occurring. I think it's unfortunately, from my view, it is currently occurring with the current leadership at our federal level, and that worries me very deeply um, about a sort of moderation that takes us away from some of those protest elements, that takes us away from thinking about how do we actually challenge some of the major parties and challenge some of the systems that people are increasingly distrusting. So what I'm seeing is that at a time in which people are moving away from our political systems and, and saying, look, we really don't trust you and we don't trust you for very good reasons, I worry that the Greens are at the same time going, well, we need to be more, more part of those very institutions that people don't like. Uh, and that's 
probably not a good idea from my perspective that we, you know, and, and for good reasons, not just because of political outcomes. You know, we don't, you know, the more and more I think we look like the other political parties, the less likely we are going to be able to distinguish ourselves and also attain more vote. But also because there are very good, as I said m multiple times, there are good reasons that people don't like these systems. And we have, as Greens, good critiques of these systems. And so trying to be more part of these systems isn't going to be a good political outcome either or a good policy outcome. And I think that, you know, if we look at the evidence, there's, you know, when we do enter into coalition governments, it often hasn't worked well either in terms of some policy outcomes. So I mentioned in the earlier one, the, you know, the situation in Tasmania where we ended up being a party that was sort of seen as responsible for closing schools or it's had electoral issues, you know, and, and um, I know Christine's in the room, so I want to say, like, we got achieved amazing things during the 2010 to 2013 election, obviously, you know, period of government, but also that it, you know, created major electoral problems, I believe, you know, in terms of... And it was, it's been harder for the party to distinguish ourselves, I think, in some ways from the Labor Party and from, you know, as a sort of different party since, since that period, and that's, that's been a difficult challenge. So I think, sort of to wrap up here, given the situation we're currently in, given the political time we're currently in, I think actually being a protest party is a good thing. Uh, and I think we can take away some of the, the stain that comes with that word, with that, with, that, with that label of protest party, because at the moment people are in a bit of a mood of protesting our political systems and they're, they're in a mood of thinking differently about our political systems and saying actually there are major problems and we want to fix those problems, we want to we overturn those problems. I think... Um, some of that is going to have to come from the outside naturally, and a lot of social, you know, social movement forces need to, to drive that. But I think the Greens can play a role in that and can play a role in thinking about how we can challenge that. But that has to come from, I think, from my perspective, a position of protest more less than a position of trying to gain access to those systems of power. Um, I'm going to subvert your question. Sorry. <laughs> Um, I think for me, uh, I, don't, I don't really like being asked, you know, should we be a party of protest or should we be a party of government? Because I think asking it that way, you know, very Simon just did, but very few people would say, I think we should definitely be a party of protest. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think for, for me, how I sort of prefer to see it is, is a little bit uh, kind of going back to that nexus that we talked about um, in the first, uh, when we were talking about the first question. Um, do we want to change political institutions, maybe even replace existing, you know, existing political institutions? Do we want to really um, change the, you know, economy? Do we really want to challenge power and power structures? Or do we want to be custodians of those structures? And so I think, for me, that's, that's the, the question that's front of mind. I can see scenarios where Greens being in government would actually be hugely disruptive. I was thinking about that a little bit this morning because I've had a really... I've, I've gone back and forth on this question a lot over, you know, over the years. When I was younger, I used to be really excited by the idea of Greens in government and then the more I um, saw it and then I guess especially being a campaigner, the more I could see the challenges that it has for us and the impact that it has on our identity. Um, so I have gone back and forth on it. I think if we go back to the to the Syriza example that Simon gave in the first um, the first answer, if you imagine a kind of a different scenario where Syriza wins power, it refuses to play ball on austerity politics and, you know, it, it, we could be living... Well, we wouldn't be living in a different world, but I think it would have had... It would have had a really disruptive effect on 
global financial institutions, it could have had a really disruptive effect on global capitalism, but that's not what happened. What happened was they implemented an austerity agenda, and it's actually much worse than if any other party had implemented an austerity agenda because they legitimised austerity in a way that I don't think any other party in Europe could have. So I think that's that's the challenge for us when we think about going going into government, and that's the, the question that I think we should aim to answer, you know, because we could be a disruptive a disruptive force in in government we could be a force that challenges power from government i guess i find it really hard to imagine us doing that in a power sharing scenario <laughs> with an established political party that doesn't want to challenge you know that doesn't want to challenge those structures i think that's that's the the real challenge um, this isn't something against minority government i think you know, minority government could also be it could also be disruptive. I think it's it's hard for me to imagine having interacted with it a little bit, us being able to really change and reshape politics, working with more established political parties that actually don't have an interest in in reshaping things the way the way we want to or the way many of us want to. I think there's another tension, and we were, we've touched on this a little bit when we talked a bit about Greens and, and deal-making, um, and I think there is a tension between our, our longer-term goals and the longer-term structural changes that we want and the obligations that we have to improve, improve people's lives because I think, I think that is a really hard thing to think about when, when you're in Parliament, when you're representing the Greens. Um, I know a lot of people... Um, with really radical politics who are really focused on, on their long-term goals and I admire them a lot, but I do, um, and I, you know, I share their goals, but um, I do worry a little bit because I, I do think that when, uh, that we should, we should be trying to improve people's lives now as well. Um, and sometimes those two things can kind of come into conflict. We were talking a little bit in the break um, about, I work, I work now in, in the kind of social services sector and Greens face a lot of tensions, I think, between do you deliver really targeted improvements for some of the people who really need them the most, which would be a good thing for those people right now, um, but in a way that really undermines the universality of government support, which is something that a lot of us really believe in. Um, and I think we've seen, we've seen those things come into conflict a couple of times over the last sort of few years. Um, we've we've seen Greens have to, you know, um, Simon mentioned uh, Germany. We've seen, you know, Greens in other parts of the world go into government and deliver some really great achievements, but at the same time, really legitimised conflicts that Greens in other parts of the world have been fighting and opposing strongly. And you know, it's left a lot of people feeling really angry and so for, for me I think those are the types of rather than kind of protest versus government those are the types of questions that we should be thinking about when we wrestle with that question of going into government. Yeah, uh, yeah just before getting into this question I just thought I'd say some things to follow on the previous discussion that were kind of coming up in my mind um, and one is around what do we mean when we say greens so um, Thanks, Chilla, for sharing that case study. I think it's a really valuable one, but I was quite struck by the emphasis on the MPs, whereas when I was thinking about the Row 8 campaign, I was thinking about all of the Greens' active members and supporters and campaigners who were 
like on the ground in that campaign. So, you know, often I think when we have this conversation, we think of it from one perspective, which is that social movements uh, create more space, which enables Greens to get parliamentary outcomes. But actually, I think um, one of the really valuable things that's been going on is that um, the Greens have been building the capacity of social movements, and especially as we become smarter in our campaigning and um, developing people who have... Um, you know, heaps of skill in that work. You know, I work, I go and train, um, you know, campaigners in lots of different areas and everywhere I go there's greens, like social justice issues, environment issues, all over the place. Um, and the skills that people have developed through electoral campaigning are paying huge dividends, I think, in those issues campaigns. So it's just another way of us kind of thinking about it, like uh, let's not always fixate on our MPs and actually recognise that, uh, you know, our party, you know, is plays these other roles as well and that's us you know because it's similar to when people talk about the union and they think they talk they point to the union as being those start the, the people who are employed by the union uh, as opposed to the union is us the members of the union in the workplace who collectively do things so it's just a little um, kind of perspective thing to to put in there for us to think about as we're talking about the greens um, but onto the question at hand, which, you know, in some ways I kind of want to avoid because it feels uncomfortable. Um, I don't... I, I think I've got a bit of cognitive dissonance around this one. And I felt it recently with the um, New Zealand election. So, ah, um, there's going to be a Labor government and uh, maybe it's going to be some kind of coalition with the Greens. And I was like, oh, yay, go Greens. And then I was like, oh, no, but then they'll get really punished for, for doing that and, um, oh, no, so they're not going to be... They're just going to be, you know, supported, but they're not going to be kind of in the government. Oh, that's better for them. Oh, no, actually, now it looks like they're getting, like, more of this power and they'll probably be able to get really good things out of that. Oh, what is that going to... Like, I really I felt like there were two parts of me having this kind of debate. Um, so this question around uh, party of protest versus party of government, like, I don't have it resolved within myself... Um, and at times of cognitive dissonance, sometimes it's handy to reach for a framework for some stability. Uh, so I did that. Um, <laughs> so uh, one of the things I, I use in training is uh, the Movement Action Plan, uh, which was developed by Bill Moyer uh, as a framework for understanding social movements. And he talks about the eight stages of social movements, uh, which is really valuable for understanding you know, what actually goes on when we're trying to create change. But he also talks about the four roles of activists as part of that, uh, and the roles that he names are the citizen, the reformer, the rebel, and the change agent. Uh, and he says, you know, at different stages in social movements, those roles uh, become more important, they, and so that kind of means you need to be flexible to step into those different roles, or you need a movement that uh, has those different roles within it and those players are able to kind of step forward and back as needed. Um, and I think this is an interesting one just to think about what, is, what does that look like for the Greens? Um, and so, you know, being um, focused on getting um, members of Parliament could mean that you could just assume that it's a reformist project, you know, that we're about... Um, we're in the reformer role, you know, which is about using official institutions... Um, you know, working that system, getting what you can out of that. But, you know, in, in the map 
kind of analysis, the reform is really important for actually embedding changes. So where a movement might be, might be pushing for all these different things, this is like when the law actually gets passed, um, when the resources actually do get distributed in the direction that we want, you know, to kind of consolidate and make that happen. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, a role that sometimes we can kind of look at and go, ah, you know, they're selling us out or they're doing these things, uh, people who are playing in the reformer space, but we can also recognise the value of it when we go, oh, wow, now there's this much money for renewable energy that wasn't there before. There's institutions that have been built because uh, stuff has happened within those systems. Um, but then the other roles that are available, so the citizen, so speaking from widely held and widely shared values that are being violated in society. You know, we kind of think about this as the ordinary Australian, um, Bernie Banton with the um, asbestos, uh, you know, uh, diseases, mesothelioma, was like a, a kind of great example of that. But I think we have Greens in community campaigns all over the place that are playing that citizen role of, uh, I'm here, this is my wetlands, this is my community, I'm standing up for it. Um, you know, I think that's a valuable role to play as well. The rebel role, you know, to, to just be like, no, that is not acceptable, we're not going to allow that to occur. Um, and, and, you know, we see that... Um, when our Green MPs like encourage and endorse nonviolent direct action and say that they're prepared to get arrested, you know, is to stand with that rebel and and um, you know, yeah, I, I just think that that's a powerful thing to have elected representatives play that role uh, and to have come from those histories as well. And then the change agent role, which is you know about paradigm shifts and and uh, really shifting uh, where things are at and building alternative institutions. I think. You know, Greens are the people in the public discourse are so often doing that. Um, and I think, you know, the way that Christine has talked about the, the economy, the way that um, Scott Ludlam's brought uh, different kinds of perspectives from ecology and um, peace into, uh, you know, talking about public discourse in ways that, that's just not there from other players, uh, just to sort of see the value in those different roles. So and it's a bit of a meandering answer, but I think part of that is like knowing which role to play at which time uh, and that um, and seeing what the moment kind of calls for. So, you know, election happens, what's the wash-up of it, what position are we in, what makes sense at this point in time. Actually, uh, can, you know, we're not, we shouldn't be... Uh, propping up a system that's uh, fundamentally broken and it's time to disrupt, you know, or, or actually, you know, is it the will of the people that the Greens play this role at this time to get the best out of that situation? You know, I really have to think, like, what do voters want? If voters are voting for Greens, do they want them to be like, nah, <laughs> actually, uh, changed my mind about that project, uh, only here to burn it down? Like, it's a, it's a kind of tricky and interesting spot. Um, but yeah, I just sort of wanted to point to the, I guess, different forms of power. So electoral power is one, um, and cultural power is another, and the platform that MPs have can be really powerful, and disruption, which is a word we've heard, can be a great part of that as well, and using the spectacle of things. So, you know, having our MPs walk out um, in response to Pauline Hanson, having Larissa breastfeed in the chamber, you know, these are cultural interventions, and they're not, you know, they're not in the reformer role they're in a different kind of space so yeah just wanted to throw that in as a, another way to think about things and good one for us to kind of chew over and discuss together